Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Christian Engermeyer is a serial entrepreneur, investor, and founder of his private investment firm, Epirian Investment Group, with $3.5 billion under management and 50 full-time employees across five international locations. Christian is going to share with us his experience of using investment to address the mental health crisis. This is Radical Truth. So our guest today is Christian Engelmeyer, who an incredibly successful entrepreneur. I think he's actually 200 years old, because if I look at his, <laughs> what he's accomplished in this period of time, it's impossible for him to be 42. But um, I'm not, I, I normally, allow, I, I don't really make the introduction myself, because I, most people are much better at giving their story. So Christian, if you could, for those who, who are from a different planet, who don't know who you are, could you briefly say who you are, what is your journey, and what specifically are you focused on? The only thing I know, you're an investor in crypto and psychedelics. Well, it's already, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, uh, uh, great pleasure. Um, so if I make it really, really short and crispy, like, so I'm running my own investment firm, which is to a big extent my own uh, family office, so my own capital, but we also have some outside capital uh, we have three themes uh, we sort of uh, investing in uh, biotech as one or sectors. Uh, and within biotech, the focus is indeed on, on mental health and longevity, sort of the two cutting edges of, uh, of life science. Then the second theme uh, sector is fintech, insurtech, prop tech, and especially crypto. So digitalization of uh, the financial industry uh, and sort of the next sort of phase of the financial uh, industry with crypto. Then we have the third pocket, which is a little bit like encompasses all, uh, is like a future tech, which is space tech, AI, uh, novel foods a lot and stuff like that. Um, and then within these three themes, we both, we start companies sometimes ourselves. So we have an own incubation uh, team. Um, and for example, a Thai is one big company, a uh, psychedelics company we started ourselves, which is pretty well known. And some other biotech companies like Rejuveron Cambrian in the, in the, um, uh, in, in the longevity space. And then we also invest uh, from very early, so seed and startup, to late stage growth financing. So that's sort of the super short version. Um, but I was trying to find out what where this all started you know years and years ago you i mean you didn't go from one day to the next to being this large investor what how did this journey start where did you you know what is your background in 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 academia or in or you were an investment banker 
No, I could finally say my background is high school because there was nothing really in between. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to give you the status of what we're doing now. So I'm doing that since a very long time. So I'm, I'm 43 and I started really like when I was 19. Um, so very early. Um, by, so I always wanted to do my own company. Uh, I don't know why. Like I'm not coming out of a entrepreneurial family. Actually, the opposite. My family is very like not entrepreneurial. Yeah, and they always thought like, what's wrong with Christian? <laughs> um, and I'm coming also from a region. I'm not from a big city. I'm, I'm growing. I actually have, have grown up in a in a in a in a village where which was 90 people till I moved. Then when I was nine with my parents to a town with like 2,000 people, so very very uh, rural. And uh, but I always to be an entrepreneur. Already like when I remember like when I was 10 years old, or whatever. Obviously in a more childish version. And then the opportunity came. I had started studying finance. Um, and I had a scholarship, um, which finally was, which is reflected in what we're doing today. So the scholarship was called, uh, if you translate it, like for highly gifted students with an interest in anything. Um, because sort of, I really always liked everything. Like I was passionate about math, passionate about biology, about Latin, which was one of my big passions in high school. Yeah, so, so I really was like, okay, what should I do? And I somehow thought like, sort of finance is sort of not a common denominator, but like a basis and then yeah, uh, to become an entrepreneur, which is wrong, by the way. But uh, so, so, anyway, so, so I had this, this scholarship and, and one of the things was that my, um, uh, my, my, my tutors in biology, uh, in the first session I had with them, I, uh, I asked them, and I was always also very good with people and very social. So I asked them, I was like, hey, what are you doing uh, when you're not tutoring little Christian? Uh, and they were telling me about an idea. And I also was always very good with ideas, like in a very non-German way, in, in meaning like, okay, how can you sort of, or I, I always have a very optimistic view on life and on ideas. And then the question is, or what I'm good in is like seeing an idea and sort of saying, okay, this is where it can go when it goes really well. Like what's the big vision, uh, uh, which is more American, I think, mindset than German. So when they told me about their idea very granularly, and I always admit that I, never really uh, fully understood it in detail. Yeah. But I was like, wait a moment. If this is working, what you tell me, and I really admire you because I was 19, they were my tutors. So I, so I, I thought they must be good. Yeah. Then this is going to be a billion dollar idea. So you shouldn't do it at university, but you should do a company. And somehow I convinced them starting the company with me. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out they had really a good idea. Yeah. The company today, I sold way earlier, but today, it's like a $20 billion company called Alnylam. Um, so, but it, it went well from the beginning. It pretty quickly became clear that um, that this sort of idea is flying, so to say. And then I dropped out of university. So technically I was never really there. On paper, I was in for one and a half years. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we, we IPO'd very quickly. I sold my stake and that was sort of the basis, sort of the first capital creation to go on sort of both as an entrepreneur and investor. What was the actual first enterprise that you started, whether it succeeded financially or just spiritually? Well, it depends on what I mean. In a real meaning, like it's this one, yeah, which was called Alnylam at the beginning and now, sorry, Rebo Pharma at the beginning and now Alnylam. I did have actually a, a tutoring business um, when I was 14 till I was 18, 
which was I think pretty successful. Like for a child, like I had like uh, I had like five, six employees uh, tutoring other children. Yeah, and um, was making like in Mark back then in Deutschmark uh, like thousand Deutschmark a month, which was a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and then very early I had like a flower shop when I was six. Yeah, so <laughs> you can pick like what's the what's the real uh, what what's the first business. You're, um, it's unusual to find fund managers who were entrepreneurs. Usually, a lot of the VC and PE fund managers never managed a payroll. They never actually managed a company. They're often just fund managers. You actually started companies. Yeah, and we still do, meaning we still do. I'm not a good operator, though. So one of the reasons why, why I'm sort of, I would say I'm something in between, I would always describe myself, I have some um, talents or characteristics or whatever, which are extremely good for an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and then I have some which are not so good. Like I would say, I'm very good with all the macro side of a company, like having the idea itself, fundraising, getting people on board, whatever. I'm not a good operator. I'm not the good right guy to manage the payroll, so to say. Uh, so this is why I teamed up with always or I learned to team up with people. Yeah, so for example, when I started Thai, uh, I immediately teamed up with Florian Srini, who are running a Thai day to day. Yeah, and I'm sort of adding my talent. And this is why I would say I'm somewhat between an entrepreneur and an investor. So, so when, when I found companies myself, I team up with people who really run it. And when I invest, though, we're unusually sort of um, unusually uh, hands-on because I still feel like an entrepreneur. So if I invest in a company, and even if I'm just the investor, I feel as if I'm the sort of co-founder emotionally and, and want to be uh, sort of helpful. Um, uh, but indeed, I think it's like I, I know obviously what it takes and how complex it is to start a company, which definitely sort of helps when investing in, in companies. And um, I, was re I was watching a, a, an interview with you where you said you don't smoke, you don't drink, uh, you don't smoke marijuana, uh, but you did try psychedelics, which led you to uh, investing. What was what specifically was the trigger for that? Was that just experimenting? Because I've been very amazed at the incredible success of using microdosing and psychedelics, not for myself, but for others. You can say it, you're in the Netherlands. Like, uh... It's incredibly success. I couldn't believe how successful it was. But by the way, I would rather say I guess you 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 rather referring to a full trip because microdosing is still not yeah. so clear. But like yeah. so, but yes, so the so psychedelics are very powerful. Meaning in short, like it's it's two different or it, 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 in in a in a in a in a in a in a timeline, it's sort of one after the other in terms of I really have never drank alcohol so far and not intending to do so or trying even. Yeah, I really didn't even try. Yeah. Um, and as never smoked a cigarette, never do cocaine or whatever. So I haven't done anything except of coffee and sugar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you would consider a drug. Um, and and I was very sort of firm that it should stay that way because I had no urge. So different than many other people who came to or come to psychedelics, for example, uh, because they look for something or healing or whatever. I really I have the real luck, and I credit my parents for that that um, I was always, and I am always very happy. Uh, um, I mean, this doesn't mean you don't have stressful days, but like my overall sort of constitution and view on life um, is to be happy, 
Uh, I also don't think I'm dumb. So I always was thinking like, okay, I have the sort of genetic jackpot um, uh, with my brain. So don't rock the boat. Don't do anything yeah, which could change that. So I was really resistant to do any drug. And uh, the only way not to drink alcohol in our society is really not to drink alcohol. So being sort of ostentatively with it, um, uh, because otherwise, which is actually, you just realize it if, you, if you're not drinking alcohol, how big the social pressure is to do so. Mm-hmm. So, so practically by really, really, really not drinking, people somewhere stopped pushing me. Um, and so that was sort of the basis though. And this shows a little bit because I believe sort of spiritually or however you want to call it, that the right thing come at the right time and you just have to have an open mind uh, for it. Yeah, because I didn't drink alcohol, um, uh, and we knew that people made a joke at a dinner and said, oh, here is, by the way, a very famous neuroscientist, uh, Rainer Spanagel, and uh, he could, is a German, very famous neuroscientist, and, and he could loosen you up and tell you that if you drink a glass of, um, of, uh, of, of wine with us, you wouldn't die. And I was like, okay, I know that, I'm not stupid, I just don't want to, yeah, but I'm happy to meet this guy. So I had dinner with, or sat at dinner next to him. And we went through all of the drugs um, um, uh, because I was like, look, I'm an investor. Yeah, uh, I'm always looking at upside and downside. Is there anything out there which gives me considerably more upside than downside? Yeah. Or, and then the question is, what do you consider upside? Like I was jokingly like, say, look, there might be people who say, hey, uh, I have to do a, I don't know, a exam at uni and I take crystal meth for three days and I'm willing to sacrifice my liver for it or whatever. Yeah. So as long as I'm very libertarian, as long as you know what you do. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is people often don't know. Yeah. So we went through everything and practically everything. What you think is shit is shit. So, so there was no, nothing where you're like, Oh, this is a, has a good risk return profile. So to say till at the very end, he came to psychedelics and he was like, look, the interesting thing with psychedelics is they have practically in the right administration with a guide that's super important. These are not things you should take lightly, but in the right setting with the right guide, yeah, they have practically no downside. There is really no big risk associated with it. And they have a tremendous upside because they cure various mental health issues. And I was like, but I don't have a mental health issue. So (laughs) no, thank you. It's an illegal drug and I will not do it. But this was sort of the first time I heard about it. And he started sending me stuff because we became friends. Yeah. Um, he started sending me uh, research out of the 60s. He actually had worked with legendary Hoffman, from who, the inventor of LSD. Yeah. So he was really, really deep in his research. And I do biotech yeah, since 19. Yeah. And I can read a study. And I was like, wow, this is really like real. Like it's not like a hunch or what do you say or like not a yeah this is proven that psychedelics have practically no downside and this massive upside uh and everything else what you might have heard negatively is because of political sort of um uh, political uh, always a plot or a political scheming because nixon used it to uh make the hippies look bad yeah mm-hmm. so it was a pure that that we believe or that the that psychedelics at all became illegal was purely because uh, they were associated with the hippie generation. Anyway, so, but I still really want to do it. Actually, I'm not as adventurous as a lot of people think, yeah, because I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm very happy. Like, yeah. And, uh, but then a year later, and again, I think the right stuff happens at the right time. Yeah, I was I literally, I mean, people always think I'm saying that just for that. In that case, I was in a country where it's legal or where it's not classified in the Caribbean. 
and uh, and I had my best friends with me, and they are a little bit hippie, and they showed me, look, we have real magic mushrooms, and they had grown it themselves, so it looked like a mushroom. So I was like, you know what? I read so much about it. Yeah, uh, let's do it. And this was my first, and then not the last one, but like it was, I would say, this one, and if, if I combine all the others, it's definitely the single most meaningful thing uh, I've ever done in my whole life. Um, TBLI gets a lot of requests for fundraising. We were approached by a a, um, a psychedelic uh, investment research fund to help them. And I said, well, I, I better check this out. I don't know enough. So I started doing research about you know how effective it was. And I was quite shocked at how incredibly effective it was. I was speaking to friends of mine who were professional football players or how they're using it for pain medication. Uh, the brother of a very dear German friend of mine was clinically depressed for years, decades, and started started doing microdosing and completely cured. A very close friend of mine uh, was had depression for decades, was on heavy duty drugs, switched microdosing, and I said, "What the hell's going on over here? It's another person." Uh, but when I was looking, uh, I spoke to a friend who worked at National Health in the UK. He said there isn't, in, according to him, there wasn't a lot of research in Europe about this, according to him. But in the US, they were further in kind of maybe not making it legal, but a- accepting that. Can you talk about what is the state of, you know, legality, illegality uh, uh, along using psychedelics for treating mental health? Um, so at the moment, they're illegal. So so some of these substances, because there is a whole uh, group of psychedelics, uh, or this is a whole group which is named like that, and then you have things like magic mushrooms with psilocybin, you have DMT, LSD, ketamine, whatsoever. Yeah, they are all illegal. Yeah, um, Some of them had been not just not legal, like we need to go and talk about the definition of what does legal mean, but like some of them had been medically available as a medication in the 50s and 60s, like psilocybin in Europe. Uh, so there was actually a lot of research in Europe. This is where it comes from. Oh. Um, so, uh, but then there was this really like, yeah, so, so this sort of political scheming uh, in order to discredit uh, the hippie generation. So, Let's go through three different, because people mix it up, three different sort of uh, terms of legality. So when normally when people say it's legal, yeah, then they mean it's consumer legal, like alcohol. Alcohol you can buy everywhere. You might, the shop might need a small license, but you can buy alcohol on every corner. Yeah. So that I would say is consumer legal. Yeah. Then you have a term which is called decriminalized, which means it's not legal. It cannot be sold. So no commercial business around it but if i if a police guy stops your car and finds sort of a a portion of mushrooms yeah which is clearly just a portion so for for your own use and not thousands of portions because you're about to sell it yeah then decriminalized means yeah they won't follow up on that they just ignore it yeah and then and then the third one which we are focusing on uh, uh is the medical use of it um and for it, so, so to say it very clearly, like we want, and I believe psychedelics should be medically available again, but in a category which is actually sort of more restricted than just prescription, it means we want to make psychedelics available again 
together with your doctor. So you would go to your doctor in the future and do your trip with the therapist together, which is, by the way, an important part of it because it's not just a trip uh, sort of healing it or healing you. It's like the whole preparation and then support during the trip and after, which, which creates sort of the healing experience. Yeah, uh, and so you can't, we not want them to be even prescription drugs you can take home. It's just with a therapist uh, together. Um, so that's sort of the three uh, things. So at the moment, they are practically completely illegal in, in any version in the whole Western world. Um, so there are a few states in the US who started decriminalizing it. So you can't buy it. There is no business around it, but you're not going to jail. Yeah. Um, and then there is the Netherlands, which is, yeah. uh, which is sort of a funny thing. They, because they, the Dutch are always very resourceful. Yeah. Uh, they realized that why ever, that's practically a mistake they luckily found, is that in the European law, it really talks about the term magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And um, which is sort of unusual because normally uh, the, the law text would use the word psilocybin, whatever. And, and sort of the Dutch are saying, hey, botanically speaking, everything above, a above the earth is a mushroom and the part of a mushroom below the earth is a truffle. So in Amsterdam, you cannot buy magic mushrooms. You can buy those magic truffles. It's exactly the same. It's just like, yeah, uh, yeah it's the same plant, so to say, or the same mushroom. But I would say that Dutch law enforcement decided not really to go against it. Yeah. Uh, but it's sort of a gray zone. And I'm not, I'm sort of, there are great clinics in Amsterdam, field trip and synthesis. I'm heavily can recommend them because they do it as I believe it should be done with a therapist together. I'm actually not happy about it's sort of sold as magic truffles. And I think that's an, an exemption the Netherlands do and no other country will do because, because if you look at how challenging a healing trip can really be, yeah, um, it can also go really wrong. So because it's not a psychedelics are not a party drug. It's not like alcohol or whatever. We're like, Ooh, yeah, we're like, so they, they really let you explore yeah, uh, your call it subconsciousness, your soul, your, your inner world. Yeah. But especially when people have a mental health issues, that exploration at the same time, then healing can be actually very, I would say stressful, but can be very exhausting, very painful, maybe even, but in a good way. Yeah. But like, if you are like doing that alone, yeah, it can go really wrong. And um, yes, it, it, I mean, it's quite easily available. There's a store near our office that sells truffles, um, as, you, as you call them, openly, and they advise you on the dosage and things like that, and so far, so good. The, what about uh, um, ayahuasca? Is that also part of this group of psychedelics? That... Well, yes, so the ingredients. So ayahuasca is a, is a colloquial term. Um, the, the ingredient, the psychedelic ingredient of ayahuasca is, um, is DMT, uh, and, and so in my company, Atai, uh, we also develop DMT as a treatment for, um, for, um, uh, for, for mental health issues. Yes. And which gets you more excited, your crypto focus or your psychedelic investments? Both, because I'm, I'm, I'm love to get excited. It's really so different. I would say, 
yes, if I have to pick one, yeah, in my whole portfolio, by the way, in total, we have like 100 portfolio companies. Um, we, um, I would say, Atai Life Sciences, my psychedelics platform, is sort of the, the most important one for, for a reason that I really think, by the way, today is there a very sad day for that thesis, is that sort of we haven't really started to understand yet how bad the mental health crisis really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, bad in any form. First of all, how big it is. Like, not I mean, the official number is always that one billion people is suffering from mental health issues, uh, but that's completely underestimated because, like, a it's a stigmatized disease, so people are not sort of openly talking about it. Yeah, so the the, the sort of gray number, or I would say in English, or the shadow number, is way bigger. Then COVID will have made this number explode. Yeah, um, because it sort of feeds on everything which creates uh, mental health stuff. And then ultimately, I think there are even more diseases out there which we haven't really defined as a mental health issue yet. For example, loneliness or the uh, sort of the fear of all of us that the world is changing so quickly that um, 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 that we are, uh, that we are like, uh, we don't feel like sort of connected anymore. Uh and uh, and that then not just is sort of a sort of human disaster for every single person suffering from it, but it also has effects on, on our entire society. Yeah, and kind of like for example, I do think like if you looked at Putin's speech, like I think he was never a nice person, but I do think that COVID and this isolation, what does two years of not touching anybody, staying away, I meaning he seems to be like so again, I think there everything he was already paranoid. And whatever has been heightened over the last two years, and definitely by the way, COVID was. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, so, so I think mental health issues are sort of these huge, huge crises, which is sort of not fully comprehended. Yeah. And this is why I think a tie is, is what I would say the one I'm most passionate about. But again, I'm passionate about all of my stuff, but like has also the biggest impact. I'm most proud of it because I really can say, like, in this millennia, um, uh, so I didn't invent psychedelics, but I, I was the very first one globally to say, look, this should be medically available again, yeah, as a as a as a therapeutics. And the um, on your at least on your website and previous discussions, your focus is very much your fund f- tries to focus on happiness, ach- achieving whatever uh, uh, social balance balance. Uh, happiness, getting people, you know, uh, out of the out of the depression, more in tune with their real uh, self. But you're working also in a financial world, which is very unhappy. Many of them. I mean, I don't know if the financial world is is per se more unhappy than others. I think we live in a world where, in generally, people are. I mean, we, we at a certain moment sort of 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 uh, intensity we start calling unhappiness or depression or whatever PTSD whatever but I, I this why I think actually my, my sort of simplified form to say it is like I believe that ultimately the total addressable market uh, for mental health not just psychedelics but psychedelics again are one are the most sort of um, um, uh, most important part of the solution for the mental health crisis but they are also other non-psychedelic drugs, other therapies, whatever. Um, so, um, 
so the um, the uh, so, so, so so I think the the total addressable market at the end is is really hundred percent of the population. And the question is just where do we start calling it a depression and where just being not happy. And I would say if I ask around, but in any industry, not just in a financial industry. Um, I would say a, a vast majority of people would not say they're fully deeply happy. No, no, that that's true. I, you know, I, uh, I don't, I, I don't meet that many people who are uh, particularly. There seems to be a, at least for me, a high correlation of those. The more zeros somebody owns, the 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 less balance they seem to be. And I'm sure there's lots of pressure, and COVID has helped a lot. It, it's very hard to, as you said, in this isolation, to maintain uh, a balance. You know, there's so much pressure. I'm surprised that so many young people have so much difficulty. I mean, I'm not young anymore. I'm 70. And I would look back at that time. I didn't seem to have that much hassle. I didn't have a phone or anything like that. We played outside. And now the pressures on young people seems to be overwhelming. No, hundred percent. Like I think a lot of people are are thinking. We should we should be. By the way, in, if you look at numbers, then then we should be happier because, in an optimistic view, the world is becoming sort of a better place. I Meaning, yes, again, today is a big uh, step back with Russia, but overall, if you look at sort of the last hundred years, sort of we yeah, we are better fed. Like poverty is going down. Da da da. Yeah, but at the same time, I think it's sort of the world we're building, and by the way, it's just starting with all the disruption and technological uh, innovation, is really bad for our mental health. Yeah, so cynically said, I think like, cynically is wrong, but like, it could be that people in the medieval ages, which were undoubtedly way worse than living now, like uh, a king back then was not living as, as luxurious than we live now, yeah, um, and then even poor people live now, but they might have been happier because sort of the, the way societies were structured and the world was working was maybe better for their mental health. Yeah. So, so it's not necessarily that mental health and happiness is connected to physical well-being. There is definitely one connection. Yeah. So if you're sick and whatever, but you know what I want to say, like, it's not that easy to say, Oh, we all have a better life and this is why we should be happier. That's not hundred percent. Um, not autism. When entrepreneurs knock on your door or your team's door for investment, we're doing this, and you know everybody's incredibly enthusiastic because you know that's how they're keeping their their spirits up. What are you looking for when you finally decide to write a check? It's a good question uh, because it's sort of these these certain something which is very hard to describe it's like a mixture of knowing what they're talking about so obviously because you also at the same time you judge the person you judge the idea yeah or the company so do they know what they're talking about is it a great idea which resonates but then at the same time sort of it's i think it's a lot of investing sort of pattern recognition is this the person who will sort of get it done like uh, yeah it's very hard to describe because it's not a formula but um, I, obviously, you, you know, um, people are very driven. It never goes according to business plan. It's always worse or better. So when it's worse, then you know, did I choose the right company or did I choose the right investor? 
um, you know, are they going to grab the steering wheel and, you know, throw me out of the, the car? If you look at all of the investments that you've done, that you find, you know, what what is the common denominator there? If you look at the financial successes that you you something touched you about this particular person that you that you tried to replicate each time. I think you want sort of maybe the, the colloquial terms is like a hustler. Yeah, I think no, but I, I think a founder is so, especially when it's an early stage company, it's so maybe the more, more polite or, or polished ways to say like the extra mile. And it's so hard that because it's like, it's even like where does this start and end? Like, it's even hard when I try to explain people like, okay, you should go more the extra mile. What does it mean? Because most people in life are really very complacent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, you need a hustler. Like, it's, it's very, it's, I can't, don't know how, but you, you realize when you see it, and especially hindsight, you see like sort of these fighters who either against all odds or even when the odds are in your favor, like starting a company and running a company is really hard. There's a lot of shit happening inside, outside. Yeah. How do you face that? Yeah. How do you find a hack? Like, um, when this doesn't work, like, um, and, um, yeah. And in an ever more complex and by the way, more competitive world, because like sort of 20, 30 years ago, and this, I, I really realized that a lot of, especially older people, older, like I would say older than 40, where I belong into it, or I struggle with that, like 20, 30 years ago, you, if you did, again, it's, it, it, it's more like obviously in the businesses, we are like tech businesses, whatever, it was sometimes good if you were the best in Europe or the best in Germany, but suddenly all these companies are by definition uh, a global um, and you compete against the others. And it's often uh, sort of winner takes it all. Yeah. And sort of, and dare to be that fighter, that hustler, that is sort of, I think the most, uh, most important uh, characteristics. Which do you think is more important for a startup grit or genius? What do you mean with grit in that? Grit, grit in the sense of being able to take a punch, get knocked down, get back up, the term, determination to keep going no matter what. If I have to decide, it would be grit. Um, but ideally, and that's again, because you go against the best in the world, I, we're trying to find people who have both. Do you think that um, there's been a proliferation of accelerators, incubators, startup support systems? And, and I often think of, you know, uh, my wife who started a, a startup in Bhutan in a vocational hotel school, and she really hated raising money and was, you know, didn't really want to, to, to do that. And, and, and I started to think maybe not everybody should be an entrepreneur, maybe not everyone has the, the wherewithal to do that. And maybe there's too much emphasis on pushing people to become entrepreneurs, which I 100% agree. That is like one of uh, 100% agree. Because again, I think coming back to the theme of happiness, you need to know what makes you happy. Yeah, and you shouldn't do stuff just because society is saying that's now the cool thing to do. You should do the stuff which makes you happy. And Part of that is also knowing what you're good at because you won't be happy if you if 
it's a constant like negative grind. So, so, and uh, I do think we over glorifying startup guys. So the or, or founders, the right ones are amazing, mm. but like companies need great number twos and threes. Yeah. So I, for example, as I told you, I'm defining myself as like, I just have parts of what it takes to be a real good founder. I wouldn't stand alone. I wouldn't be a good founder because I'm not good in the, in operating. Yeah. So, but, so I define sort of, my company yeah, around me that it sort of is elevating and using my skills and sort of avoiding my, my, uh, my weaknesses. Yeah. So, but the most important thing is know yourself yeah, and then structure your life around it. And then it might be that you say, I'm not a founder, but I'm a good co-founder or I'm a good uh, first employee or I'm a good whatever. Yeah. But there is no, there shouldn't be social pressure to be one or the other. And, but how do you know when you have a good co-founder or COO, because you say I need pe- good people around them, how do you know that you have the right that you made the right choices? Well, you see if it's working out. It's also like a hard, <laughs> a really hard sort of question to answer. I jokingly always call it the uh, the porn rule because a good friend of mine, Nuri Rubini, is a famous economist. He was asked a similar question in the financial crisis on TV. He was asked, like, when is a bank too big to fail? And he said, the problem is there is no formula to, to sort of perfectly define that. But show me a bank, which, and I tell you if it's too big to fail. And then he added, it's a little bit like with this old discussion in TV, what is porn, which should not be on TV, and what is soft erotic. And he was like, it's very hard to define where the line is, but show it and tell you. Like, that is, like, so I call it the porn. There is, a, there is a more sophisticated name for this show me and I tell you rule in, in psychology. or in, 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 in uh, But I always tell it as an anecdote. And that's a lot of questions like, is that like it's, yeah. And that is part of, by the way, becoming a good investor is training your pattern recognition and, and looking back and sort of analyzing what went wrong because obviously regularly things go wrong because that's sort of the the, the, the the daily thing of our business yeah and then what can you do better then you also shouldn't only should analyze a lot but you should also not overanalyze a lot because sometimes you also have luck yeah you can say there's one great book i once read which was about why people who are who, who grind as you call it and who who uh who, they, who fight as hustlers, why they seem to have more luck. It's because they increase the probability of having luck. Yeah. If you're out there every day, like someone, you're going to be lucky. And then you just need to be still be open-minded or because a lot of people, also, I think get presented opportunities, but don't see it. So I deeply really believe that practically everything that's my part of my spiritual belief is that everything which is happening to me is inherently good, even if it's bad. Yeah. So, um, and, um, so everything which is happening, I treat as an opportunity and I really try to have an open eye, open mind and like, okay, so, and this is why meaning a lot of people did psychedelic trips over the last 10 years. Yeah. I think there was sort of the right moment because if I look back literally around the time when I did psychedelics for the first time, there was sort of, it was the right time to do it because cannabis had had sort of had been re-rated. Yeah. So the time was right. But again, most likely in the same year, millions of other people, or maybe, maybe let's say hundreds of thousands of other people had their first psychedelic trip. Yeah. 
But I was trained to say, oh my God, if something this cool happens to me, it happens for a reason. And maybe the reason is I should start a company. So yeah, but yeah. Did, did the TV show Nine Perfect Strangers help the mental health industry? Finally, I think yes. So I, I, I did not see it. So oh, I saw okay. the trailer. So okay. I did not watch it because ah, oh, this is too sensationalized. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, um, Nicole Kidman does it without consent. So there is many things wrong in it. However, sometimes we overjudge details and we... It's a little bit like, very, like life is so like, what do people take away from it? And people seem to have taken uh, away um, from it that psychedelics are positive yeah, um, and can, can help people. And why I'm saying it's very topical because I was sitting at a, a conference called Munich Security Conference mm. and had dinner with a head of state. Yeah, and he suddenly asked me, well, I read somewhere you have psychedelics like have you seen nine perfect strangers i thought it was really good and i think it works so i was like oh wow like this is like uh this is like great yeah you might i don't know if you know if you'll enjoy it but it was interesting to see you know but she did not tell the others she was microdosing everyone i'm going to take a couple of the questions i didn't microdose right they they, they fully dosed that wasn't uh, really yeah good. yeah they fully dosed but she didn't say how much she put in Okay. She said, well, let's increase the dosage. Um, Aaron had a question. Is the World Happiness Index from the OECD a much more effective and holistic measure than GDP for measuring health of societies? It's a good question. Um, I know the index in detail too little. Like, what? how does the index measure happiness but i would say in generally i think it would be a good approach to say how i would put it like ultimately being healthy and happy these are the two things i think what we all ultimately want so there is these you know if you are if i would ask you now or anybody in the world what do you want in life again bad thing is a lot of people really don't know what they want but if they want then they would say maybe somebody would say oh i want uh, financial success i want a car I want a family, I want a great job, I want a house at the sea. Yeah. So people answer, normally the first line of answers is, is things or successes or whatever. But when you poke people and you're like, but why do you want a car? Why do you want family? Why do you want children, actually? Why do you want anything in life? If you, if you ask long enough why, 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 the end will always be because I want to be happy. So, so you can practically boil down everything to this wish of humans to be happy. Yeah, and yes, so I think it would be uh, an important thing to include sort of happiness in the measurement uh, of, uh, of, of the success of politicians or of policies or of countries. Okay. Joshua, who's also a um, mental health investor, wanted to know, how do you work to address the human capital risk in your investments, working to ensure that the founders or teams maintain their mental wellness? Well, I started now to recommend them to go to Amsterdam uh, <laughs> and to, uh, to future. No, it's like, it's a good but way. That is what that line is in front of the uh, mushroom store. <laughs> well, so, no, 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 not to the store, to really the clinic, because I believe in you have to do it with a therapist. But what we do encourage, because with all the like, I think we also, I think it's important to know if you become a founder, as I said before, this is a very tough job and 
I would say that way, if you're the best one, yeah, I, I as an investor want you to work day and night because like there are not many really, really, really good founders. So if I found one, I want that founder to sort of relentlessly work because he's the best one to do it. So that's the one side. But I do think that a lot of investors and society as a whole over glorify or don't see the line. Yes, I want them to work really hard, but I want them to do that for a long time. So it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I don't want them to sleep a little. By the way, sleep is a very sort of what I tell all my founders. It's very simple, but like you don't need to talk about mental health, like sophisticated stuff like psychedelics or whatever, if you sleep too little. Yeah, because sleep deprivation is the start for anything bad for the, for for our brain, for our body, whatever. So, so I want them to understand the fine line between working hard and a lot and doing too much. Yeah. And the same is true for their mental health. Yeah. If they break down, if they're not really mentally healthy, yeah. Um, it's not worth anything for them and for me at the end as an investor. So I try to have this discussion and try to be a little bit different than other investors would say, go, go, go. Yeah. Including recommending them certain books and techniques. Okay. Michael wanted to know, Michael Small, do you think it is possible for highly enlightened people to reach the same or similar place that you are talking about with appropriate drugs? Yes. Short version, yes. Okay. And there are great, there are great, uh, great um, uh, really tests and even video recordings in the 60s and 70s still, like where, where people like Ramdas uh, or uh, Timothy Leary went to um, spiritually enlightened people, monks, whatever, who is especially meditation at the end and fasting, yeah, gave them high doses of LSD, uh, and the people didn't change. They were still able to normally con have a conversation, uh, and then they were like, okay, Ramdas uh, apparently was like, well, how? Like, you should like be in another universe, yeah? And then the people were like, well, I can switch in and out of that, but what you do via LSD, I can switch in and out naturally by meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, Beata, my general counsel, wanted to know if you could design your dream team, who and how do you would you pick? For what? Your dream team for? All right, I guess for a startup. Okay, it's still like a dream team. Like uh, you mean people you would know, or like what? What is like dream? Like um, again, it's so it's so there, there. There are some founders who are really very good solo founders. Yeah. Sometimes it's teams, but sometimes the solo founder who hires then the right one. There is, I think there is no 100% formula for that. Okay. Are you a unicorn hunter or are you a mental health investor? Well, if the question is, if that 100% describes me, neither nor like, like, I mean, we do more than mental health. I'm investing. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, but like we have all the other stuff. If, if it was a sector question, and and unicorn hunter, that sort of yeah, it's also a lot because like, it's maybe a, one company is like already amazing when it's a five hundred billion company and you invested in a five billion valuation. Like it's all at the end. But if question is like, yes, so my job is to make returns. Yeah, uh, so right. that's what I want to make. Yeah, and that also because we have. Most of our Pyron is my own capital, but we also have external capital. So for the sake of my investors, yeah, my job is to make turns and to make as high returns as possible, mm -hmm. yeah, with as little risk as possible. So that's my job. And yeah, and but it must not be a unicorn per se. Like again, invest in a company, uh, 
needs five million. Uh, five million valuation makes five hundred million is a great investment. But if you had a, a company that was unbelievably impactful on the mental health space, but it's going to take a really long time for them to reach the level of profitability for an exit. And then there's another one that would reach a profitability earlier, but not have the impact on uh, wellness. Would you have a conflict there? Personally, would you like prefer to help company that will have the greatest societal impact, but you still have your LPs to make to keep happy? Yeah, so I think these are always questions which are which try to a little bit find that sort of. Um, um, that sort of, uh, how you say, uh, they, it's questions which have as an underlying sort of question, which is not asked, yeah? by the way, which is a lot I, I, I see generally, and I always try to point out a lot of questions. There is the other big question about patterns in the field, like where sort of there is a headline question and then there is a sub-question which is not asked, which is sort of a little bit of a, uh, a negative feeling of some people against capitalism, whatever. So my answer would be like, yeah, why, why do I have to choose? Like I have 100 portfolio companies, like, yeah. So, so, uh, and for my fund, but there might be companies where, or ideas, which let's say they do not fit into the financing world in terms of if I have external money, that's my responsibility. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not my own one. And even if it's my own one, I have a responsibility to myself, yeah, to make returns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if a company clearly, and by the way, in that clarity, it's rare, but like if a company clearly would say, oh, wait, this is a super interesting idea, but it won't make returns for 10 years, then yes, indeed, it's not suitable for a investment in a fund or whatever. Okay. But we have a charity part, like, or we have things I'm doing because I'm excited. I'm financing research, which will never be anything than interesting research about conflict resolution with psychedelics. There will never be a business around it that Putin pays me money to trip with... Uh, uh, with Biden, yeah, but like maybe in ten years I make politicians trip, but that's a completely non-profit thing, yeah. Okay. It just, yeah, it's not a, it's not in competition or at war with each other. Okay, Lisa um, uh, wanted to know. We haven't we have noted she's an investor. She have noted a number of founders with mental illness are starting mental wellness companies. How does one manage the risks in those situations? Yes, that is a good point. We see as well. Um, I think they they need. I mean, you need to be aware of that, and then it can be a great strength because obviously that founder knows sort of what he's fighting for. So that's the good side. Yeah. The what I also have seen is sort of the the, the downside of it is that often part of, of any mental health issue is also a little bit like paranoia is so strong, but like it's harder for them to let go and to realize, give you an example, like in drug development, yeah, in, in biotech, it's co- two completely different things, really like different job profiles, different talents to really find a good drug or be sort of a, an amazing scientist to either discovers or understands everything about a drug. And then the other ability is to take this drug and bring it to approval. Yeah. These are two different jobs. This is like, 
I don't know, this is like the guy who builds the, 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 the engine of a plane and knows how a plane is flying and a pilot who flies the plane. Yeah, and, for ex- and especially when people have an emotional connection to it because they may be in the field of drug development, for example, because they do it for themselves in a certain way. Yeah, it's often harder to convince them that they stand in their own way, so to say, if they, if they don't let us or other people we could bring in or together sort of add people who are really the right ones to do, um, to do the sort of develop the, the, the approval process. And, and that's just one example. Like, again, it can be a strength because it gives you passion and, and meaning and it can be a weakness if you become sort of very protective and you believe you're sort of the only person who can do it. So then it becomes a risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we're coming toward the end of the hour, and I know you're incredibly uh, busy. We are going to go into the virtual mixer. You're more than welcome to stay if you have time. If you don't, that's also fine. Let me just take a group selfie with everyone who's still here. Um, just wave to the camera, and then we'll collate that and send that to everyone. Uh, a final um, question. What can this audience do to help you uh, in case we lose you during the mixer? Sorry, say again, because I, I was what concentrating on so the, the, the program <laughs> wanted me to do a what, selfie. What, so, what yeah. can this audience that's watching now live and those that will watch the replay or those that watch on YouTube, what can they do to help you? Well, I'm always like, I don't know if I, I think I can post a comment. I'm happy to give out my, my email address if they are, um, which I'm typing in right now. Um, um, if there are great ideas, we're always looking for great companies, great founders, in generally great ideas, even like on the on the nonprofit uh, one. Did I write it? Yeah, I always to make sure I'm very bad with multitasking. Uh, so I put in my, my email address. Um, uh, and I think it's like, in the mail, so don't worry about it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so deal flow is great. Spread the word. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth.